As we've um, been working our way through Acts, I guess there are lots of little questions that are beginning to sort of bob around in our minds. Because the gospel is spreading. Do you remember it spread from uh, Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth? And so you're beginning to ask, what kind of a kingdom, what kind of a church is God's kingdom? We've had a few little Gentile individuals who have received the gospel, who have responded. Families who have heard lives that have been changed but but what happens when it's not just individuals or small gatherings what about when it's kind of clusters and the Lord does lots of things lots of work in Gentile believers and so what these first verses I think in 11 seem to do verse 19 onwards is show us what happens when a church begins The gospel going out to all kinds of people, you'll see, Jewish and non-Jewish backgrounds. But Luke especially focuses in for us on this new church in the first sort of Gentile territory. So, first point. So 11, verse 19 to 30, we see something of kind of the unification, if you like, of the Gentile church. And I want you to see three aspects that are going on. So the first thing for you to see is that this is a church beginning. Verse 19, now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So, the account looks back to chapter 7. Do you remember Stephen dying and and the church persecuted and people leave, but the word scatters with the people. The gospel ripples spreading out to eventually places like us. But a couple of things just to note in these uh, three verses there. Two new things, I think. This is the first detailed example or, or an account of normal believers sharing the gospel. Normal Christians speaking to those they meet. Normally it's the apostles, normally it's the the people with names. Here you've just got church members, people like us, common or garden Christians. And verse 19, some only shared the gospel with those of a Jewish heritage. But then verse 20, something else new happens. The second new thing is that there are conversations going on en masse in Antioch, with non-Jews, with with Greek folk, from a Greek background. Normal believers sharing the account before, but this is a detailed account. We've had non-believers hearing the gospel before, but this is big numbers. So this is new. And the fact that they are folk from from, uh, Cyrene and Cyprus, well, that might mean they had less concern. So Peter needed a vision, if you remember last week before he was prepared to take the gospel to unbelievers in the week before. Maybe there's less of a stigma attached for these folk who are on the edge of kind of known territory. Maybe they're more willing to share with guys from Greece. And Antioch, well this is extraordinary and it's very contemporary. Antioch was the third largest town of the day, city of the day, cosmopolitan, secularised, pagan. The kind of place where you have ideas kind of place where immorality was rife, the kind of place where 
knowing that God has made all people clean, is quite important. And in case we're a bit twitchy thinking, well, the gospel has got to these folk, is that okay? Is that really part of the plan? Well, look what happens, verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So two key things. This is normal Christians sharing the gospel. And the second key thing is that these are Gentiles who are believing en masse. This is new stuff. And what do you do when you get a a great number of people believing and turning to the Lord? Well, the second thing that happens is that the church is established. Verse 22 to 26. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw that the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first, at Antioch. So news spreads. Things have been happening. The gospel works. And news goes back to mothership. And mothership send Barnabas to check it out. Barnabas is excited. He sees it's a work of God. He encourages them. And, and indeed through him the church grows. But what do you do when you've got a whole bunch of baby Christians? You need leadership, you need teaching, you need discipleship, you need input to, to help them thrive and flourish. To teach them to deal with problems and prioritise things and bring order and to grow. You need to, to help them mature. Barnabas then goes to look for Paul. And why Paul? Well, I wonder if it's the vision back in chapter 9. Because there the Lord had told Ananias to go, see, to go see Saul, as he was. But the Lord says to him, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings, and to the people of Israel. And you've got a brand new little church of Gentiles. The Lord is using normal people to reach non-Jewish folk. So who do you look for? Maybe we go find Saul because he is going to be the Lord's chosen instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles. And Barnabas has seen him in action. He's an evangelist, he's an apologist, he's a, he's a teacher. And the two of them together teach these brand new believers. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. But it's striking, it seems to me, at least as Luke records it, that, that they gather these teachers to look after these baby Christians... But as they do that, the church seems to grow. So you're not told of evangelism strategies. It just seems to be that they're growing and teaching. These are healthy Christians. Healthy churches produce healthy Christians. Healthy Christians show and speak the gospel to those around them. It seems to me that's why most of the New Testament letters were written. You don't get much, actually, about evangelism strategy. You just get stuff about healthy churches. 
Because when churches are healthy, they look outwards. They make a difference. They bring transformation. And the church here grows so that it becomes a known entity. The believers are labelled as Christians. The church is planted. And the church is established. And thirdly, it seems that the church thrives. Verse 27 to 30. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now, if you're with us this morning, you will remember perhaps that there was a similar situation we we read about in Corinth. This is not the same one. This is a different famine, it seems to me. This one was earlier, before what we read about in 2 Corinthians, before the collection there. But again, you see inter-church partnership. Different churches partnering together to care for Christians in need. Providing for their needs as these needs arise and as people are able. This is the church plant looking after Mother Church. This is Cowley Church Community giving to Magdalen Road Church because we get in trouble. This is the body of Christ at work. Despite different places, despite different types of people, different ethnic backgrounds, as a unity. And so we get this snapshot of Antioch from Luke. We see a love between brothers and sisters. But he answers the question for us, what happens when it's not just a few, and not just little Christians together, but there's a whole bunch of people? What happens if it's enough for a church, a body of believers? But it's interesting, because the other question that we then begin to ask is, well, where does that leave the Jewish church? Do you remember as we read the beginning of Acts 1 verse 8? Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, ends of the earth. And what you'll see from basically here on inwards in Acts is the focus goes on to Paul and his mission to the Gentiles. If you like, to some extent, it's been Peter as the hero, human at least, in the first 14 chapters or so. Sorry, 10 chapters or so. Now that changes to Paul. And in fact, if you look at chapter 13, 1 to 3, we're back to Antioch again. So why is chapter 12 there? It's interesting, isn't it? What happens to Peter? Has he just kind of been relegated? Has he had to retire? He's disappeared? Has there been a replacement? Have they had their chance, they've missed the gospel and so God has moved on? Perhaps, perhaps that's why there's a famine. I don't think that's right at all. Just as, as an aside to this, I would thoroughly recommend Daniel's sermons from last year, from Romans 9 to 11, on this kind of stuff. Thinking how Jewish church and Gentile church interact, how they work together, how they are part of God's plan, how it's not a plan A and a plan B. Get them off the website, get them onto your MP3 player and have a listen this week. Because it seems to me what you see is this Gentile church is formed, 
But God has not forgotten his Jewish believers. They've been preserved, they've been looked after. So what you get in chapter 12, I think, is the preservation of the Jewish church. God has not moved on. I'm going to read chapter 12 to us, and then we will just very briefly have a look at what's going on there and how God preserves his people in chapter 12. 12 verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak round you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda, came to answer the door. She recognised Peter's voice. She was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace, because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms, and he died. But the word of the Lord continued to spread and flourish.
So I want you to notice God's sovereignty as he protects the Jewish church. You see, he's sovereign because he is in charge. We knew things were getting bad because the church had scattered after Stephen, but the apostles, it seems, had stayed and had been preserved. They seemed to have avoided state persecution, but, but not now. But notice God's sovereignty over the persecutor and over the persecution. The people-pleasing Herod starts off the account and he ends it. He arrests people and he kills people and he does it more and more and more because he sees that some of the Jews like it. It's, it gets a bit confusing, so it's probably helpful to do a bit of background about Herod's. And we're just going to pull into a lay-by for a moment. Um, and there are four generations of Herods in the Bible that it's worth us just being aware of, just so we know how they fit together. Um, so the first one was Herod the Great. He was the guy who tried to kill baby Jesus. He was the guy that the wise men went to visit. Um, he was around about 37 BC to 4 BC. Herod the Great. After him is the next Herod, Herod Antipas. He was involved in the, the trial of Jesus, but he sends him back to Pontius Pilate, second Herod. Then this one here is Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, but he is the nephew of Herod Antipas. Okay, so Herod Antipas's brother, Aristobulus, has a Herod. And there won't be a quiz, <coughs> but they're not all the same person. There are four generations. So here we've got Herod Agrippa I, grandson of Herod the Great, nephew of Herod Antipas, and then there's Herod Agrippa II. We'll find him later in Acts 25 and 26. Paul will make his defence before him in Caesarea. He is the son of this Herod here, Herod Agrippa I. So there are four generations of Herods. That's slightly by the by, but it's striking that Luke uses the name Herod. It seems deliberately... I think we're meant to join the dots. He could have just called him Agrippa. But it's as if he's saying, do you remember Herod? He persecuted baby boys. He, he massacred Jewish boys. Do you remember Herod? He's the one who didn't stop the cross. And so here again we have another people-pleasing Herod. Another enemy of the people of God. Again, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Again, persecuting God's people. But again, God is sovereign. Have a look at 21 to 23 at the end. <coughs> he puts himself in the place of God and enough is enough. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne, delivered a public address to the people and they shouted, this is the voice of God, not of man. Immediately, he doesn't give praise to God. An angel of the Lord strikes him down. He's eaten by worms and he dies. A bit weird, isn't it? To, to worship kings in those days was not uncommon, but any self-respecting Jew would not be able to go along with that. But he refused to give God the praise, and so he dies. The angels and the worms thing, we say. What's going on there? I'm told that being eaten by worms is a common ancient phrase. It's shorthand for those people who, who get their comeuppance, who deserve it. 
people who richly deserve punishment. And so in one sense, Luke is telling us what happened and why it happened. God was the judge. Herod deserved it. Just as an aside, it's interesting, if you look at other ancient documents from the time, they they do speak of this. Um, The Jewish historian Josephus, interestingly, records two aspects. He says two things. One is that Agrippa did not stop the crowd worshipping him. And two, he was seized with violent internal pains, carried home and died five days later. God is sovereign over persecutors. They will receive retribution as they persecute the people of God, his body. That may be in the here and now. That will be in the there and then as he righteously judges them in hell. God is sovereign over persecutors, but persecutions too. Which is what you get in this kind of extraordinary prison scenario. It's sort of prison break, um, but a bit more exciting. Peter didn't expect it. Amusingly, the Christians at the prayer meeting didn't expect it either. You get a glimpse into how the early church deals with persecution and problems and They're there praying fervently at a prayer meeting and and God answers their prayer and they're not quite ready for it. Do you really answer prayers, Lord? A bit like us. He's removed from prison. He ends up at the prayer meeting. And then this beautiful story of poor old Rhoda, she probably never lived it down. Poor thing, oh yeah, we know all about your gran, yeah, yeah. Christians laughed at her for years to come. God is at work. He is in charge. He is working all things out, even through persecutions. He he allows them to happen. He is sovereign. He protects, he provides for his people. And so you see, Luke is finishing off this little chunk in Acts. It's kind of a new theme from chapter 13 onwards, a new direction. But you see God very clearly at work. He is forming this Gentile church linked in with the bigger church, loving God's people from a Jewish background. He establishes them, he grows them, he matures them. They're united. But he's not forgotten the Jewish church. He is sovereignly overruling and intervening and protecting despite hardships, despite persecution. So some of that comes through the Gentile believers as they give. Some of it comes through his miraculous intervention. So the focus of Acts will be the spread of the gospel into Gentile territory, to to reaching people who end up being folk like us. But that's not planned because he's still looking after his Jewish folk who have trusted in his Messiah. He has not moved on from them. 